Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Retired after 60 years as an attorney in Des Moines, Iowa, Lyle Simpson is first and foremost a humanist, and he's written his second book on the subject entitled Fully Human, Fully Alive. What kind of an attorney were you? Well, kind of interesting. My first four or five years, I loved the chess game in the courtroom, but I discovered I felt guilty when I made someone else lose. Now, who's going to want to hire an attorney who's going to feel guilty winning for him? (laughs) (laughs) So I decided I gotta do something with my law degree that that I would find beneficial. So what I decided to do is only help people be successful in whatever they wanted to do. And uh, as a result, I've created over a thousand different entities and profit and nonprofit or whatever uh, during my career. Uh, acted as registered agent for 3,000 companies doing business in Iowa uh, and built a firm of, well, we got up to the mid-20s and decided it wasn't fun anymore. It's too much administration. So we picked 12 and have kept it at that. Uh, And about half of the work for those 12 lawyers comes from my client base, five of which are now world leaders in what they do. I can feel good about that. You should feel good about that. So were you like a life coach? Well, my book has a chapter in there on Myers-Briggs psychology. And a guy by the name of David Kiersey wrote a book, Please Understand Me, Roman numeral two, where he amplifies on Myers-Briggs. And he has a simple 70 question. It's not a test, but it says, do you prefer this or that? And you go through and you take that test, and he'll identify exactly who you are. And in about five pages in his book, he'll, you'd think he was your mother or your best friend, uh, describe you. And uh, what, what he described for me is that I'm what's called an idealist. Less than 10% of society think that way. What Myers-Briggs says is there's four different styles of processing information. And whatever style you have, you have for your lifetime. But uh, I can analyze other people's problems and solve them fairly easy. I just can't see myself. <laughs> so I can only see myself through, through inflection from others. And uh, most people have an, a modifier of one of the other traits. I don't have any modifier, so less than 1% of society thinks like I do. And... Uh, as a result, I've built my practice on that, and it's been very successful. I can't complain. But then I'm 86 now. Wow. <laughs> the first book was Why Was I Born? And that was written because uh, humanism is a philosophy of how you live your life here on Earth today. And uh, there are people within all faith groups that are humanists, so it's not anti-religious, but it is anti-people that put barriers in your life that keep you from actualizing your own existence. And so what the book actually is, uh, Abraham Maslow was a humanist who created 
humanistic psychology, and that's chapter seven, and the book is centered around that chapter. And what Maslow did is he discovered that there were six levels of living and that each level has a separate purpose. And the lowest level has the strongest drive strength. The next level above that has a drive strength of about half of that of the level below. And all the way clear up to actualization when drive strength evaporates. And beyond actualization, you can get into what's called a fulfilled existence where you dedicate your life for others. And as a result, I've given a third of my time to society one way or the other. And uh, good God, uh, my resume is 18 pages now. Oh, jeez. But uh, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, well, our Iowa governor, I've been his campaign counsel since 1978. He's now the longest-serving governor in the history of the United States. He just retired as uh, ambassador to China. I've been involved in hospitals for over 50 years. Uh, I built a mental health hospital of 130 beds. I've just, I don't know if you know anything about Masonic fraternity, but uh, I'm a, what's called a 33rd degree Mason, which is as far as you get. So, it, wait, well, isn't the whole point is to find out why you're here? Isn't that part of the problem? We don't know why we're here. We don't know what we're meant to do. Well, there's, the, the book serves two purposes, two audiences. Uh, one audience, the last census found that 27% of all Americans, when you ask their religion, will say none. But over 40% of those that are millennials and younger will say none. And my concern there is that religion is the social glue that we have in our society that that uh, gives you a value system. And so if you do away with that as a means of determining a value system, then the question is, how do you get one? Well, with many people, it's what we call groupthink. What everyone around me thinks, I'm going to believe that too. But the problem that that causes in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, religion is the the second level. It's a security level need. And perhaps as much as half of the social level, which is the third level, uh, because most people belong to whatever church they belong to for the socialization that they get with other people that think like they do. And what happens is that when you have a belief, you develop what is called a scotoma, which is a block that keeps you from seeing any other belief because it's our means of sorting out information so we can live a good life. And what the book does is help you build bridges over those scotomas, those blocks. You can't hit a scotoma head on because, first of all, you can't see it. You can only feel it. And when you do hit it, uh, people react sometimes emotionally, negatively. And so rather than attack a belief, what the book is attempting to do is help you build a bridge over those scotomas so you can get to the next level. And uh, 70% of all Americans cannot get above the social level. So they don't even realize there are three levels above that that they could live if they only knew how to get there. And so 
The book gives them the means of accomplishing that. It'll show you the path to get to the top. The next level above is the ego level. Uh, about 25% are stuck there. Only about 6% ever get to the actualized level where you have a fulfilled existence. And only 1% go beyond that because what happens is, and there's a diagram in the book that shows this, your uh, selfishness, you know, on the, the basic level, you know, if you got to go to the bathroom, nothing else counts at that time. And so it's very strong. Those things that will allow you to continue to exist are very strong. And you've got to solve those to get to the security level, which is where religion is. And you've got to solve those before you can get to the social level. But uh, once you've got a pattern, once you understand the system that will cause that, you can then put yourself in a position where you can move up that scale. And at the same time, every time you move up to the next level above, your selfishness diminishes almost at 3 to 50%. So at the time you get to the actualized level, you no longer have any selfishness. And when you get to that level, you could get to the 1% of people that have a fulfilled existence where they give their life for the benefit of others. You can do this all in one book? <laughs> oh, sure. Are we full of blockages? You, you mentioned ego. How about emotions, environment? Well, everything does. Uh, you know, and I barely touch on some of those, but, you know, whatever is going to cause your barrier will differ with each person. You know, if you're real hungry, nothing else is going to be real important to you at that moment. But uh, and the percentage of society varies just about on the same scale as the hierarchy of needs. The hierarchy of needs looks like a pyramid on, in chapter 7. And uh, the, the number of people that actually get to those levels goes down at about that same rate. So there are no, in, a, in a typical organization, you'll be lucky to have one or two people that get to the level of a fulfilled existence. You know, they really are dedicating their life to help others. And yet life is so fulfilling when you do that. So this is 16,000 Masons in Iowa. There's a, probably 140 of us that are 33rds. But uh, the shrine is a parody on Masonry. you got to be a third-degree Mason to, get a, to be a Shriner. But they needed a positive purpose. So what they did is they created 22 Shrine Children's Hospitals throughout America where the family of no child spends a dime and uh, they handle primarily orthopedic problems and children with very serious burns. Well, the problem that they have today, they're 100 year old. I've been involved with hospitals for 50 years. It didn't take me very long to figure out what their problem is. Their problem today is their hospitals are underutilized. Well, I figured out that about 85% of the 345,000 children's visits that they had in uh, 2018 had to be on an outpatient basis so no wonder their hospitals are underutilized mm. so I got permission from the president of Blank Children's Hospital here in Des Moines and the president of Unity Point Health that owns that hospital 
to offer to the shrine that we would create the very first shrine children's clinic and blank children's hospital here in Des Moines to prove to the shrine that's their medical model for the future. That would then free up those hospitals so that they can turn them into Masonic nursing homes uh, so that they pay for themselves instead of wasting 80% of their budget on bricks and mortar that's not doing them any good anymore. So I called the international president of the shrine and told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, put it in writing so he can explain to his board. So I did. And he calls back and he said, we'd like to visit Blank Children's Hospital to see what you're talking about. So in the middle of a snowstorm in January 2019, five other officers came from Miami to Des Moines when everyone else was going the other direction because <laughs> they came in a snowstorm, checked out Blank, and they thought, you know, this really could work. So October 2020, we opened the very first Shrine Children's Clinic here in Des Moines. It's now outgrown that facility. It's so successful. These are children that Blank would have never been able to handle before. And I'm now working to help create 200 Shrine Children's Clinics so that every Shrine Temple has their own clinic that they can refer their children to because otherwise the local Des Moines Shrine Temple had to pick up a child here in Iowa, take him to Minneapolis, Chicago, or St. Louis to the nearest hospital. Now they just bring him right here to Des Moines and blank, and they can go home. Okay, so this is an example of what we'll find in your book. But it sounds to me like you have some resources that maybe not everybody has. And I talk about that. I, you know, I says, you know, if you're 98 and you're on your deathbed, there's still some good you can leave behind. I think your immortality comes from the world being a better place because you've been here and to that extent your life has more value than it simply has on its own and so the book gives you the path of how to get there what you do with it will vary with the person there will be thousands of different ways people accomplish what I'm talking about so I'm not telling them exactly what they have to do but I do give them some examples of what they could do my own grandson I do describe him in there he was a freshman at Drake. He went on a three-week study abroad program with three professors and 20 other students to Uganda because one of the professors had grown up there. Well, the objective of the students was to see a different culture and then write an essay or a paper at the end of those three weeks so they get college credit on what they saw and what might they improve upon or and how would they get that accomplished and what values did they learn that maybe add something to their life positively. Well, my grandson hears the story of this fellow that had to take his wife on the three-day journey to the nearest medical clinic to try and deliver their baby, but he didn't have the equivalent of $5 to uh, pay for the delivery kit so the clinic refused to deliver her so he tries to deliver the baby on the side of the road and the baby and mother both both died well that was more than my grandson can handle he says I'm going to spend the rest of my life seeing that these people get a medical clinic when he made that commitment six of the other students agreed to help him which meant the three professors had to help so it started the ball rolling my grandson had no idea how he was going to get that done, but he was determined. And so the long story short is that because of my Rotary Club and, and one of the girls that was with him, uh, uh, the club even picked up that project. Well, that clinic is now opened. It's now 
seven years later, it's got four buildings and seven full-time employees, and the 30,000 people of that community now have access to medical care they've never in their history ever had before. Well, that's that's a fulfilled existence, you know, and that's where we're, what we're talking about. How, how do you let people know that your book is out there? The American Human Association has published both of my books, four editions of the first book called Why Was I Born? Because of trying to answer a question Carl Sagan gave to me. Uh, uh, he was saying in the known universe there's 300,000 planets, each of which are capable of sustaining life similar to that here on Earth. Well, with that many, he says it's rather vain of us to assume we're the highest form of life. Well, that troubled me so much, I wrote a book on it, Why Are We Born? That led to the second book. I've given classes at Drake University on this, and it's also called Fully Human, Fully Alive. Uh, they don't sell books, so I went to page publishing, and now the, the book that they just came out with has been edited five times, so it's easier to read, and it's actually much better. And so we're just in the process of promoting that. Given away about 500 of my first books through the American Human Association, and I sign every one of them, and but I hand them out. So, you know, I've not made a dime on it, and I'm not expecting to. I'm more interested in helping people have a better life. Des Moines Library has me in their library. The Iowa Historical Building has me in their library. Uh. And there's a lot of humanists that you would know, uh, Betty Friedan's the biggest bitch I've ever met in my whole life, but look what she did to emancipate women. I know. And Gloria Steinem, who followed her, Gloria Steinem's a beautiful person. Uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, I've yes. been on a panel with him and, and uh, met him twice. Uh, uh, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> yeah. uh, Will and Ariel Durant wrote The History of Civilization. A very close friend of mine sat at a bar stool between B.F. Skinner and Abraham Maslow where they were arguing over their philosophy of humanism, and I've been kicking myself ever since that I didn't have him write an essay on that argument. It, that'd be a classic in psychology. Yeah. But, but unfortunately, he died. But uh, yeah. um, but those are that's the quality of the people that are humanists. Gene Roddenberry that created Star Trek. Uh, Star Trek, yeah. Uh, well, every issue of Star Trek is a humanist message. And I've met him. He was in a wheelchair by then, but Will and Ariel Durant wrote the history of civilization. Uh, Stephen Hawking, that you know, just died. Oh, and was yeah. A humanist. yeah. Uh, Charles Darwin was a humanist. Uh, Robert Ingersoll. Every time I go in the uh, Vatican, I, I think about Michelangelo, who designed the dome as well as painting the Sistine Chapel. He was a humanist, but so was uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Humanism goes clear back 2,600 years ago to the Epicurean philosophy, although, interestingly enough, the first time that Epicurean philosophy was labeled humanism occurred in the Des Moines Unitarian Church in September 2017. No, not 2017, 1917. And uh, the then minister of the Unitarian Church here in Des Moines went on to actually be the founder of the American Human Association and of the first 12 presidents of the American Human Association Three of us came from the Des Moines Unitarian Church, so, you know, if you're interested, 
in how to gain more out of your life. I can show you paths for doing it. I've got a chapter in there that discusses the Bible in some detail. I've got a chapter in there that discusses our some of our religious traditions. And uh, just to give you an example, we look upon Christ. First place, we look upon him as having resurrected. Well, when uh, one problem the Dead Sea Scrolls cause is they were written all during the life of Christ. If he was resurrected, you'd think that's something they'd be writing about because it's, they're only 12 miles from Jerusalem where they were writing, and they've been looking for a Messiah to come because they thought that when the Messiah came, it meant it was the end of days and all of the Jews are going to rise up at the same time and go to heaven, so everybody wanted that to happen next week. Well, they don't mention Jesus. <laughs> it was Paul that created the Christ. So, I'll give you an example. We look upon Calvary as being a grassy hillside and Christ was carrying the cross. Well, neither of those are true. And when you're in Jerusalem and you look around, you're in the edge of a desert. There are no grassy hillsides. What there is is a rock that's about 15 feet high and 50 feet across that's called Golgotha. And the posts were permanent, but it was right outside of the wall. And so when you put somebody on top of one of the posts, people inside could see you're crucifying them, and so it, they could be good. Well, Jesus wasn't carrying the cross. He was carrying the cross member because that's how they put you on top of the post. But the reason why we think it's a cross is this was all written in Greek, and the letter Ta in Greek has a little upla on the top, and so it looks like a cross. And so everybody believes that Jesus died on a cross. Well, he didn't. He died on a T. But, you know, you've got to see it to believe it. <laughs> oh, I could see that would be, that could really upend some people. But it's, so what? Well, yeah, it's for uh, your consideration. It's to, it's, it's to give everybody something to think about. We could all use something to think about. Well, and just really, you're, the premise being to make the world a better place and to realize your full potential no matter what you believe, if you believe in Christ, you can still meet, reach your full potential, right? Oh, heavens, yes. I do give all of those messages in the book for a lot of reasons, but because I'm dealing with a very wide audience, and I don't know where the person's reading it is coming from, but I am giving them something to think about. And right. I do tie all that together, but you've got to read through the book to get there. So I start out rather bold by saying, okay, there's no life after death, and what are you going to do with life you have? So that people that are so stuck on the security level give the book to somebody else, throw it away or whatever, and don't read any further, because those are people that probably don't have the capacity to, to rise above it. And uh, I'm so I'm not interested in killing their faith, but uh, for people that have enough education so that they can realize that if you think about a subject, it'll help you grow. Um, I give them all kinds of paths to get there. Well, you, you got me sold. <laughs> I'm curious. What what a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. You're well, amazing. 86 <laughs> years old. You're just amazing. You're, you're more than kind, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. All right. Bye-bye, Lyle. Bye-bye now.
It's been a great ride is the name of our next book by Michael D. Sullivan with Bill Temelonis. Bill's helped a lot of people put their life stories together as a legacy to their children, and Michael was happy to find them. Michael, did you ever write before or keep a journal? No, no. It, Bill was the writer. He he helped me uh, transcribe and so forth. I, I tried to do it myself several times and, and ran out of gas, honestly. It's hard. It's really hard, right? Don't you appreciate writers now? I do. I mean, you know, I've written a lot of business reports in, the, in my life and, and always getting it down on paper the first time is the hardest. Everybody can edit. It's right. getting it down the first time. Bill was wonderful at that. And then, you know, I more or less, I, I dictated to him, but then I was the editor. And it worked out beautifully. Well, how did you find him? A friend of mine, a state senator from Maryland, did a book. And I read it and I said, gee, it's wonderful. He said, well, he said, this guy, Bill Tam Lewis, helped me with it. <laughs> and he gave me his number. And that was it. Okay. So it's been a great ride is the name of your book. And I, right. I just, I'm curious what made you feel compelled to write this book now? Probably my grandchildren. My parents came from Ireland and they didn't talk much about the, the old country or, or relatives. And, you know, when they passed, you're saying, gee, I, I wish they'd have told me more about what went on in their lives. And uh, and they never did. And so I said, I'm going to write something so my grandchildren can read about me <laughs> later if they, if they care to. And so that was the, the motivation. So I have to ask you, are you, are you on a walk right now? Yes. You are? <laughs> so you're a very right. active man. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, I think we should tell everyone that you are on a walk through Arizona. I know. I'm on the golf course. You're on the golf course? Are you going to putt while you're on the phone here? No, no. I, oh, okay. I'm not. All right. So you're taking a break now. Tell me about your book. Well, it's a, you know, kind of a, a, a biography on my life that, uh, you know, I, I started, I wrote it chronologically, you know, started from the beginning and, and went through my entire life from, you know, the youth growing up with and my family and, the, you know, my first job and moving on from there. And I, I came up with the title with The Great Ride because I was the CEO of Merry-Go-Round Enterprises. And, you know, the ride and the, the horses on the Merry-Go-Round kind of <laughs> gave me the idea for The Great Ride. Did you start from humble beginnings in Chicago? I did. You know, my parents were immigrants and came to the uh, U.S. in the 20s from Ireland, and okay. they first settled in Toronto and then uh, came to Chicago when they were, uh, you know, very young because my mother, who was a devout Catholic, said there were no Catholics in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, she had to go somewhere. So Chicago was heavy with Irish Catholics, and right. that fit perfectly. And, you know, he was a construction laborer his whole life, and we never were hungry or any of that. But, you know, he made a, a decent living for a construction worker. You know, probably the most he made in his life was a, hundred dollars a week and so we as kids all had to work if we wanted spending money i think i had my first job as a newspaper boy probably around 10 or 11 and uh you know getting up at five in the morning and delivering 100 newspapers and you got paid the uh 
the princely sum of a penny a newspaper. So a hundred newspapers made you a dollar a day. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and and if you if you missed the delivery or gave somebody the wrong paper, they and they called and complained. It was a quarter fine. <laughs> oh jeez, that <laughs> that fine. hurt. Yes, it was a severe penalty, and uh, you know. So then I caddied when I was a teenager, and and then you know I got, I was in high school, and the the guy that was had the newspaper distributorship the they lost their um, guy that had the newsstand on the main corner. And he came to me and my mother and said, you know, I want Mike to have the newspaper stand. And she said, oh, no, no, no. He's he's going, he's going in high school. And he said, ah, he, he doesn't need to go to high school. This is much better. He'll make a hundred bucks a week. And she said, no, he's going to high school. He said, can he take it? And so we worked out a deal where a friend of hers who was a retired uh, Irishman like from Ireland that he like them and uh, he would sit there during the day I would open at five and go to school at, at eight and he would sit there at eight eight to two till I got home from school oh. and and I did make a hundred dollars a week I was making as much as my, my father and so it uh, but you know and my brother-in-laws used to say to me see my four siblings older siblings were 12 to 16 years older than me so they were more like aunts and uncles and and so they would say to me, why are you going to school? This is a, this is a great job. And my answer was, a great job. On Saturdays, I worked from 6 in the morning till midnight. That's, oh. not, that's not an idea of a great job to me. And so, Did you have a lot of brothers and sisters? I had uh, five. Five brothers and sisters, and you? Yeah. where were you in there? I was the fifth of six. There was four older and, and one younger than me. Okay. So were they all pretty much doing the same thing? Your parents made sure they went to school? and Two of them did not. Oh. You know, two of them dropped out in high school. And, uh, you know, my, my mother was the, you know, she was educated and her, her, aunt, her older sister was a teacher. And, uh, you know, so she went to the equivalent of college in Ireland, uh, you know, back in the early 1900s. And she pushed education. And but the girls at that time, you know, this was uh, the 40s and 50s, you know, the best the woman could hope for would to be, you know, a teacher maybe or, uh, you know, a secretary. And so yeah. they went to high school and then went to, you know, uh, secretarial school. And two of them, my, my brother and sister, they dropped out in high school, which was quite common in those days. I mean, you know, they get a job and, you know, that was it. And, but my my mother, I was, I was her special project. She was pushing me to go to college. You know, college, you know, you could afford it then. I mean, because Loyola Chicago, it was $500 a semester. And you could earn 500 bucks in a part-time job. Right. Now, now you'd have to be a drug dealer to earn your tuition part-time. It's just, <laughs> you know, you couldn't. You can earn forty thousand dollars, you know, on a part-time job. No, that's it's why. it's absolutely out of whack, yeah. and that's why we it have is. so much student debt. It's insane. Oh, it is, and that's the reason we have student debt is because the the colleges realize the kids can borrow the money, so they can keep raising the tuition. Yeah. And if, if if there wasn't student loans, they couldn't raise the tuition. Right. So you got out of college, and what happened? I majored in accounting, and I, I was interviewed by what was then the Big Eight, and I got 
first from all of them. And I, uh, I decided I'd go with Arthur Anderson because they were headquarters in Chicago. Right. So uh, it worked out. You know, they, I, I always tell the young kids, go to work for a consulting company because their only product is you. And they train you for a simple reason, to make you worth more money so they can bill you for more. <laughs> but at the same time, you get, you know, tremendous experience. Right. And so I, um, you know, I went, I, I got drafted when I got out of college and I didn't want to spend two years. So I enlisted in the Marine Corps in a, a reserve program where, you know, I, I spent six months on active duty and then five and a half years in the, in the reserves. And, you know, I didn't miss a beat at Arthur Anderson because I, I took my six months while they were not busy. And, and uh, you know, and I came back to work for the winter, but uh, it worked out great. And it was great experience. And, you know, one of the companies I did the audit on was moving to Texas and a, a lot of the Chicagoans wouldn't go. And so um, the, the, I had worked for the, the fellow that was becoming the chief financial officer. And he offered me a job to go with him as, as his assistant. And uh, my wife and I went down to Texas, looked and said, this is great. And so we left, which was a shock to my family because nobody ever left the area where we grew up to think somebody was moving to Texas was unheard of. But it worked out fantastic. They treated me great. And both the president and the CFO took me under their wing. And, you know, as a 28-year-old, I got a lot better experience than, than I ever expected because, you know, I was like their their project. Yeah. and uh, You were a that, lot of people's projects there, Michael. Right. You know, but, uh, but you were no dummy either. I had had intelligence, obviously, and right. had a great memory, and I had a work ethic. You know, I, I was used to working, and you know, so no matter what they asked me, I did, right. and uh, and people appreciate that. Right. And and so I I got moved to Florida, and had, we hated it because, you know, we were in. A, 30 and at that time and in, in 1970 everybody in florida was my age today yeah right I know. <laughs> and we didn't we didn't fit in <laughs> and the schools were terrible and so i stayed like three years and i went back to dallas but i in the three years i was in florida i worked for a, a brilliant entrepreneur his name was harry mangurid and he was the, the smartest guy i've ever met as far as you know, making money. I mean, he could turn anything in, in the money. He was in the furniture business, but he built condos and he was the first guy to have a land lease on condos, which, you know, he, he made the renters, buyers, paid him $500 for 90, 90 years. And, uh, oh you my know, gosh. It was a, a, a tremendous annuity. And he decided to get into horse racing and he bought four horses. One was a 20 year old mare, but they were supposed to be Kentucky Derby quality horses. Well, the two males were injured all the time. And the uh, the female turned out to be the three year old 
horse of the year and the four-year-old horse of the year. Now, you know, mm. people raise horses all their lives and have a big winner. He buys four horses and one is a, a world champion that, you know, becomes the foundation of the stable. Oh, my gosh. And so, but when I went back to Texas, I worked for Norman Brinker, who was another brilliant entrepreneur who founded Steak and Hale. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot from him because, again, he was a horse person and he had a great philosophy. He said, if you have a thoroughbred, you train him you, and you give his head and he performs. He said, you can have a plow horse. Or, he said, you got to whip him every day to, to work. He said, I look at people the same way. Ah. You, you, you find thoroughbreds or you find plow horses. He said, I like to find thoroughbreds because mm. I, I don't want to whip you every day to get you to work. <laughs> you know, I was in accounting and finance with, you know, my, with General Portland and with Steak and Hale. And when I went to Maryground, it was a small company that had about 25 stores. And uh, the reason I left Steak and Hale was because we sold out to Pillsbury. And, you know, we, we were, you know, an entrepreneurial company and all of a sudden we were owned by a big conglomerate mm. who was calling us from Minnesota every day asking what we were doing. <laughs> uh. We used to we used to win the phone and ring we'd say, uh oh, the little doughboy is calling us again. <laughs> and uh, and so <laughs> it was not fun. And so I went with this small company, and uh, I was the, the chief financial officer, but I was also in charge of operations. And we had two equal partners. And in you know, the late 70s, they started fighting. They were great partners, but they couldn't get along personally. One was a character, Boogie was his name, and he was a a great merchant, but his real avocation was chasing women. He was the kid that his job was chasing women. He kind of filled in that with buying merchandise, but uh, he was a character. And they ended up, you know, fighting. And so when one guy took a leave and the other guy became president, he worked about a year and a half and he went to Florida on vacation and never came back. And so he said, he called me one day and said, you can have my office. He said, I'm not coming back. And I said, well, are you sure of that? He said, yeah. He said, I, I said, I don't want to move in there and then have to move out. That'll be embarrassing. And he said, no, no, no. And he hangs up and said, calls me back about a half hour later. says, I'm such a dummy. He said, I, I was supposed to tell you you're president, not that you're getting my office. And so that's how I ended up becoming president. And then, you know, we took the company public in 83. And uh, that was uh, great for them because they were trying to sell the company for $16 million. We went public and they, they split $30 million and still own 70% of the company. Wow. But uh, we all got wealthy, too, because the stock performed great. And uh, as I said, it was a great ride. Yeah. So did you end up having children? I did. I have three children. Okay. And two, two daughters and a son. And uh, did, did you, you know, make them deliver papers at 5 a.m.? Uh, no. 12? No. <laughs> no. 
they, <laughs> the hardest thing they did was they worked in the warehouse in the summer, you know, in the clothing warehouse and complained to me that it wasn't air conditioned. <laughs> did you want to smack <laughs> and, them? <laughs> no, I didn't. And, and But when we built the new warehouse, I, I air conditioned. And I said, see, this is because of you. I, you, know, you, you complain so much that we air conditioned to do it. So. But now they uh, they went to college and one went to John Jay School of Criminology and oh. interned for the FBI, but then got married and she, the FBI, you could end up anywhere and she didn't want to take that chance. So then she settled in Baltimore and has three kids. And the second one, she worked on Wall Street for the first six or seven years and kind of got burned out. She was at Solomon Brothers and then she... Uh, she got her master's degree in social work from Columbia. And I kidded, I said, you went from the highest paying career to the lowest paying. And uh, she said, well, I don't intend to be a social worker, but she was in human resources for Ernst & Young, where she met her husband. And uh, that was her last job. She became a, a full-time mother and uh, she has two children. And uh, my son never got married. He uh, engaged two or three times but each time kind of uh backed out of it and uh he spent 20 years in california but uh he moved to vegas about seven years ago he's been there ever since you know they're all, all three very successful and the, the grandkids are now uh, uh 19 to 25. wow what's the takeaway from your book i mean you've lived a charmed life sir wouldn't you say? Well, I, I guess the, uh, the the takeaway was the harder I worked, the, the luckier I got. <laughs> and that uh, I think, you know, that hard work and finding something that you, you really like. And uh, I happen to love business. And uh, I always aspired to be a CEO. And, you know, finally, when I, I got the chance, uh, you know, I loved it. I just, uh, you know, I was dedicated and... Uh, you're always thinking about business. What could we do better? What, how could we do more? Right. And uh, I really learned from Brinker that you really had to develop people. And I think I spent, you know, an inordinate amount of time on on training people and developing them and, and giving them their heads. Uh, you know, the two partners were micromanagers. I mean, they wouldn't let anybody do anything <laughs> that they did. Uh, they didn't have a say in. Right. And, uh, you know, when I took over, that was like a, a breath of fresh air that somebody, you know, we had a lot of talented people. And when you gave them their heads, they they really performed. Right. That, that was extremely rewarding. Sure. There's nothing worse than being micromanaged. Oh, that is. At this point, are you interested in selling this book? Are you interested in going out and talking about this book? I, mean, I, I I guess so, sure. You know, it's not. I don't need the money, but uh, I guess ego would push me to <laughs> to do it. But uh, there might be a local university or college that you're involved with, or could be involved with. I mean, you would be a great speaker at a college business class. No. Well, I was on both Loyola, Loyola Maryland, and Loyola Chicago's board, but I mean, at the very least, since you went to Loyola, let them know you wrote a book. They might invite right. you to speak. You know, 
Right. And I'm sure you would love it. I'm sure you would love taking questions. Um, when you look at today's generation, what what's the biggest thing that bothers you? I mean, a, a lack of, of, of work ethic. I mean, mm. you know, like once they, with the pandemic, they don't want to go back to the office. They're comfortable working at home. And I, I, you know, I could see that, you know, you don't have to commute anymore. And, uh, but, but, you know, you have to, I, I feel you have to be in the office at least, you know, quite a bit of the time because there's that camaraderie of working together with people that, you know, you don't get uh, via the computer. And uh, the the American Airlines workers were saying they're going on strike. Mm-hmm. They only get forty days of forty hours of sick leave. I'm saying, well, that's a whole week. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when 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 we started, you got no sick leave. You know, you you you, you, you were sick. You took a day of vacation. But uh, uh, so I, let me do this. Let me. T- I've got a very good friend who's uh, you know who's. A priest, and he he, he was at Leo as a professor, but he started a, a, a junior college for them, and uh, you know it's, it's been phenomenally successful. And so, let me talk to him and see what he thinks about it. Okay, you do how, that. Okay, <laughs> and in well, the meantime, your kids and your grandkids have this book. I mean, this is great. They've read it. They're like, "Hey, I get him." I say, "I used to be somebody." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a, so, all right. Listen, you have a great day, Michael. Thanks right. so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.